<laughs> and, or if you need a Bible, if you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, uh, we want you to follow along in God's Word so you can make sure the preacher's telling you the truth. Uh, so just raise your hand, and each gentleman in the back will bring you a copy of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at home that's your own, we want you to receive this as a gift from us, to take this uh, with you, have it in your home, use it in your home. Uh, we pray, love God's Word the way we love God's Word. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, the Gospel of John. We want to consider um, verses 22 to 30 this morning with God's help. As we continue in uh, a series we've been working our way through for a number of weeks now, one of the most important things to establish as a new church is what you believe and to teach the new congregation what you believe. And so we've been working through our statement of faith, which is the second London Baptist Confession that was written in 1689 by Christians in London, England, and has served the, the church, the Baptist church in particular, for those 300 and some odd years. And we stand in that same tradition of Protestants growing out of the Reformation who hold these truths to be what the Bible teaches. And so we come now to uh, chapter 17 of our statement, which is on perseverance. It's on the question of continuing or persevering or remaining or carrying on in the faith, how that happens. Our, our statement in the Bible answers not only the question, how does someone become a Christian, but how someone remains a Christian. And knowing how you remain a Christian is as important as knowing how you become one. And understanding that well is a wonderful balm to the heart. It quiets the restless, doubting soul. Now, John tells us that um, he wrote this gospel with one major goal in mind. So if you're already in John chapter 10, keep your finger there and flip over to John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, uh, John's a, a clever writer. He writes this entire story, and he saves to the end nearly uh, the purpose for which he's written it. And he tells us there in verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's John's goal? Why does, he, why does he believe these things? Why does he write these things? Why does he want others to believe these things? Well, he, he writes as an eyewitness to the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus as a friend and followed him daily for three years. And, and he saw so much of Jesus' life and so much of Jesus' miracles in the world that and he couldn't even put them all in the book. And so he has to sort of think about what, what should I include? I'm going to include the things I include so they might believe in him and believing in him might receive life. Look with me at John 21, 24 and 25. There John tells us, again, he, he couldn't write everything. He says, this is a disciple who is bearing witness about these things, referring to himself, and who has written these things. And, and we know that this testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
So when we come to John 10, we are hearing from someone who was there. We're hearing from someone who knew more about Jesus than he could ever write down. And he's writing to persuade us of the truth about Jesus so we might believe in Jesus and believing have what he calls this life that is in Jesus. Now, John wrote other parts of the New Testament too. He wrote three letters that also bear his name. And in one of his letters, 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, again, at the end, he sort of tells the people why he wrote that letter. And this is what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Now, that letter has a slightly different purpose. John's gospel is written to people who don't yet believe so that they might believe and receive life. John's letter is written to people who already believe that they might be made more certain that they have the life that was promised in Christ. Now, our text, John chapter 10, and our question of perseverance lies in between those two poles. It's an issue that arises between believing and assurance or confidence, which we'll think of next week. And John chapter 10 sort of answers the question for us how it is we carry on in the faith and, and, and what it is we trust as we carry on in the faith. So, here's the key question. Will we make it to the end? Will we go on believing until Christ comes or will we turn away? And how will we make it? to the end. Those are the questions of perseverance. And these are the questions that people may ask for a variety of reasons. People who believe but also doubt are disturbed by this strange blending of belief and doubt may ask this question. People who because of sin and brokenness in their life are afraid God won't love them or forgive them or won't keep them but reject them may ask this question. And people who sin without conviction ought to ask this question. And people who may be facing immense temptation and wonder why they don't experience complete victory may be asking this question on the ledge of temptation, will I make it until the end? Will I go on believing in Jesus Christ until the end and receive my reward. John 10 answers that question, I want to suggest, with three questions for us to consider. Number one, do I know Jesus' true identity? Do I know the true identity of Jesus? We'll see that in John 10, verses 22 to 26. Second question is this, am I really a member of Jesus' flock? I really belong to Jesus' flock? That's the question that's prompted by verse 27. And then number three, who am I trusting to get me to the end? Who am I trusting to get me to the end? John chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. That's what we're going to cover this morning. Let's now look at God's Word. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. 
So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us with these most important questions of life and death, of eternal life and eternal death. And we pray, O Lord, you would help us to know your Son, to know him better and to love him more than anything else we know and love in all the world. And we pray that you would open up to us today his glory and let us see him as he truly is and and to grant to some for the first time a saving faith and to root others, O Lord, again in the faith already given. Meet us each, O Lord, individually, and meet us all collectively. And let us, O Lord, leave this place in some sense of awe at your greatness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first question we want to think about is, do I know the true identity of Jesus? That's the question that's prompted in verses 22 to 26. The, The text opens by giving us some specific details here. First, we're told the time and place of this event in verse 22 there. It's the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Now, we would know the Feast of Dedication by a different name today, a more popular name today, Hanukkah. Anybody ever heard of Hanukkah? This is what's, what's happening here. Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, is not actually something that's commanded in the Old Testament. It's actually a religious celebration that happens between the the two testaments. Well, Israel is occupied uh, by a series of of other forces. In about 167 B.C., a man named Antiochus IV, who's in control of Israel and Jerusalem, he tried to force Jewish people to adopt Greek culture. And in fact, tried to force them into the worship of pagan gods. And so he outlawed things like the Jewish Sabbath and, and observance of the Sabbath. And he outlawed, outlawed practices like circumcision. He even defiled the temple by offering the flesh of pigs on the altar and requiring Jews to worship idols. That was 167 B.C. And that triggered a revolt that went on until 164 B.C. when Jewish people kind of won, for a while at least, their uh, independence. And and they had this celebration for the rededification of the temple and for the, the purification of the temple. That celebration lasted for about eight days, and that's what's in view here in Jesus' time. They're, they're, they're celebrating, as it were, the rededication of the temple and the people to the worship of God and and of purifying themselves before God. Notice also in verse 23, it takes place in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. It's an area of the temple with high marble columns, 38 feet high or so. It would have been sort of to the east of the temple. 
It, it would have had sort of curtains and, a, and a, a cedar ceiling. So when the text says there that it was winter, this would have been the one place to go in the temple that would sort of block out the winds and the cold. And, and, and Acts tells us, Acts chapter 5, I believe it is, tells us that this is where the early Christians met for times of fellowship and prayer here in Solomon's colony. And this is where we find Jesus walking. And this is where the people approach him. And we see this situation. If you don't know Jesus, then times of religious dedication are actually times of religious blindness. A person can be so dedicated to the wrong ideas about Jesus that even when he's standing in front of them being asked a direct question, they still remain lost in darkness. Don't trust how religious you are as the basis for whether or not you will persevere until the end. There are many religious people who persevere in religious belief but who don't know the Lord. Many. We know their religious dedication came with religious blindness because of the question they asked in verse 24. Look there with me. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They sound a little impatient, don't they? It's not an inquiry, it's an inquisition. If Jesus' answer is what reveals their blindness. See, they claim to want to know plainly if he is the Christ, title that means anointed one or chosen one. If you're new to your Bibles, this is a, a title that was used in the Old Testament that was, that was used to, to sort of refer to a person that God promised to Israel who would come one day and who would deliver Israel and establish his kingdom. And so for centuries, Jewish people were, were looking for the coming of this Christ, this Messiah, this anointed or chosen one. And they want to know now if Jesus is that person that they have been waiting on. They want, to, they want to know plainly. Tell us. And again, it's Jesus' answer that reveals the blindness in this. So verses 25 and 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. They're asking as if Jesus never told them who he was, that, that, that he is the Christ. They're acting like Jesus somehow was cryptic or vague or mysterious about things. They want plain answers, but Jesus says he'd already given it to them, especially if they would consider his works, the things that he did, the miracles that he had done in his father's name. That too, even in the answer there, was a clue as to who he was, uniquely the, the son of God. Now, keep your finger in John 10, and let's, let's just look at some of these places where Jesus told the people who he was. Flip back over to John chapter 3, where this man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's a religious man, a religious leader, and he wants to know the same thing, you know, who, who Jesus is, if he really is a prophet and really is the Messiah and really is the one that they should be looking for and believing on. And Jesus tells him a number of wonderful things, but look at John 3, 13 and 14. 
He says to Nicodemus, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man, which is the way Jesus often referred to himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here's Jesus saying, I'm the one who's come from heaven. And I've come to be lifted up, to be crucified on the cross, to give my life for people so that anyone who believes in me would have eternal life. I'm the one who gives life. He told him plainly. Or or look in John 5, verses 16 to 18. In John 5, verses 6, in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who was blind at the, at the pool of Bethesda. And I love those stories about Fanny Crosby that were shared early in the service today. It reminded me of my favorite little Fanny Crosby anecdote where someone said to her in, later in life something along the lines of what a shame, what a tragedy it was that she was blinded from infancy and, and had never seen the world, seen color, seen, seen the beauty that's in the world. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. She says, you realize that when I go to heaven and my eyes are open, the very first thing I will ever have seen is the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love that woman's perspective. So Jesus here, he heals a blind man at the pool of Bethesda. And notice what he says in verse 16 down to verse 18. He says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He was so plain about who he was, they wanted to kill him. That he was, in fact, the son of God, God the son, equal with God. A little bit later in chapter 5, see there in verse 22, how plain the the Savior was. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. He's claiming here to be the one who judges the entire earth. Verses 24 to 26, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I'm not only the Son of God, but it's by my word that men come to life. And it's by my word that even the dead will live again. A couple more. John chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And we're we're skipping some. He's all of the gospel been telling them who he is. So John 7, verse 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, right there in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Effectively, he's saying, you don't know God. I have come from him. Verses 37 and 38 of that same chapter. On the last day of the feast, this is previously now the Feast of Tabernacles, 
I think, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. A wonderful allusion to the Old Testament where God promised to give his people living water to drink. And here is Jesus now saying, I'm standing in that very place. I am the one. I am the God who gives you this river of living water. Whoever comes to me and drinks will live. Is that not plain? John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus is having an argument with Jewish people at the time, and they are claiming that they are descendants of Abraham, and they are trusting the fact that because they're descendants of Abraham that they're okay with God. And Jesus tells them that Abraham is not their father, but the devil is their father. And then he tells them this in John 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's a remarkable statement. He he takes the divine name, I am, spoken to Moses in Exodus, and he uses that divine name as his own. He is the great I am. And before Abraham was, or before anything was, Jesus existed. He's teaching there that he is the pre-existent God himself, the always existing God. And they understand him. Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He has been over and over and over again telling them plainly who he is. Here's the problem. He's more than they imagined him to be. He's far more than he imagined them to be. Many people don't believe in Jesus because he's, he's more than they were looking for, not less. They wanted a rebel leader to fight against Roman soldiers, but Jesus was king of kings and lord of lords whose kingdom was not of this earth. They wanted a good teacher to tell them the the sort of intricacies of the law. But Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, and not one jot or tittle shall fall until all is fulfilled. They wanted someone to do miracles as if they were parlor tricks. But Jesus came to do his greatest miracle by dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the grave on the third day. They wanted someone to affirm them in their privilege as ethnic Jewish people and to affirm their culture. But Jesus came to give them eternal life and a new kingdom and a new culture of glory. Much more than they could ever think or imagine. And so he is to sinners today, much more than you can even begin to imagine. Jesus says to them in John 10, your problem wasn't that I wasn't plain. Your problem was that you did not believe. It's not plain to you because you you don't believe. You see that there in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 10? Our Lord speaks there and he says, I told you and you do not believe. The the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. The problem wasn't intellectual. It wasn't in the head. It was in the heart. It wasn't what they knew or didn't know. It was what they did or didn't trust. What they didn't give themselves over to. And, And that might be you today. 
You may have come this morning and you've joined us and you're, you're thinking now together with, with, about, with us about John chapter 10 and, and we're reading of events that are over 2,000 years old and, and you may be asking yourself the question, well, what's the relevance here to me? Well, the relevance is, are you like these people who were talking to Jesus 2,000 years ago? Notice them. They, they say, what, what can be known about Jesus isn't quite plain to us. Tell us plainly. Tell us in a way that satisfies us. And Jesus is saying, how many ways can I tell you? I've told you that I'm the son of man. I've told you that I'm the Christ. I've told you that I'm the son of, I'm the son of God. I've told you that, that life comes through me and life comes by my word. And not only did I just tell you those things, but, but I did things to demonstrate that what I was saying was in fact true. I healed the, the, the blinded eyes of men and I raised even people from the dead. What other, what other proof do you want? And so maybe the question for you this morning is, why is your starting position unbelief rather than belief? Have you ever thought about that? If you're not yet persuaded that Jesus is who he is and that you should love him and follow him, have you ever asked yourself the question, why do I start on the negative and, and kind of want everybody to give me all of the answers and bring me over to the positive? Especially if God is a God full of love and full of compassion, if he's good and he's merciful, and, and this message that I'm hearing is about his love for me, not his hatred for me, his desire to, to have me as his own and to, to make me a, a son or daughter in his kingdom and to love me forever and to give me joy in his presence forever, why am I starting on the negative? Have you ever thought about that? because our problem isn't intellectual. Our problem is spiritual and moral. We start on the negative because we start as sinners. And in our sin, we're turned away from God. So the fact that you, you just began without thinking about it, sort of needing to be convinced, is actually proof that you're a sinner, that you're turned from God, and that what you need is to be turned around. Right now, you're going away from God and, and, and what, what's necessary in order for you to, to belong to God and to, to be forgiven of your sins and to have eternal life is that you should turn around and move toward God. This is what we call repentance. Lest you turn from God, you'll continue to run away from God. But you'll run right into God only as your judge, not your Savior. There's no escaping him. There's only coming to trust and believe in him. Jesus has proven his love for you in this. And while you were sinners, and while I was a sinner, and while I was on the sort of starting position of doubt and negativity and rejecting the knowledge of God, while we were in that state, the Bible says Christ died for us. His crucifixion on the cross when he suffered the judgment of God, that was also the display, the proof, the evidence of God's love for us, of God's love for you. And then he rose again from the grave on the third day for our justification and that we might have eternal life. I think the Lord would ask you, what, what, must, what more must I do to make it plain? 
that I am the Son of God in whom is life. And then if you would believe in me, your sins would be forgiven and you would live with me forever. If you've come this morning, you've been skeptical about Christianity. I wonder if you could suspend your disbelief long enough to really consider who Jesus truly is. I hope you would do that because if you discover who he truly is, you will never have regretted putting down your doubts. Trust him. Try him. Which brings us to our second question. First question had to do with faith, really. Do we believe the right things about Christ? Do we see him for who he is? Do we accept him as he offers himself in the gospel? He doesn't offer himself in accord with the expectations of men. He offers himself as really the the son of God and the Lord of all and the giver of life who is to be loved and to be followed. Do we believe in him, the salvation of our, our souls? Well, Jesus says something else in John 26, John 10, verse 26. He says, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. And that prompts a question, does it? Well, how is it that we become part of his flock? If if, if he's speaking to people who are on the outside of his his flock, and, and, and they are made sensible enough to know, oh, wait a minute, I'm on the wrong side of the fence. I need to get inside the flock. The question is, well, what, what, what does that kind of sheep look like? What, what, is it, what does it look like to be a part of the flock? And that's what Jesus begins to answer in verse 27. Notice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Three clear things. His sheep hear his voice, his faith. He knows his sheep personally and individually, his fellowship. And his sheep follow him. That's following Faith, fellowship, following, right? So, so look at this. My sheep hear my voice. It's a, it's a reference to a, a clear spiritual recognition of Jesus' truth and identity. One of the wonderful things, you think about Jeremy and the birth of little Savannah, one um, of wonderful things about um, understanding the development of children, even in the womb, is that they come to distinguish their parents' voices from all the other voices, even while they're in the womb. This is what makes reading to the baby, even in the womb, such a powerful and, and wonderful thing. They, they are, they are in, the, in, in the little fluid, in the sack, you know, hooked up the cable. They, they can still hear mom and dad calling them, right? They know mom and dad's voice as if it were imprinted upon their souls. And so it is with Christ and his sheep. Of all the voices in the world, and there are many voices in the world, beloved. There are are many shepherds and kinds of shepherds in the world. The one voice that the Christian hears and recognizes and can pick out of the crowd is the voice of their Savior. It's the voice of Christ. Sometimes the still, quiet voice. And sometimes the hearing speaking his voice, as John says in Revelation, like many waters roaring. It calls, and the sheep know. I remember once reading this, this book by a, um, 
a guy who was a chaplain at an at a Ivy League university. And the book was kind of his life story and his memoir. And he's really telling the story of how he, how he really sort of educated himself out of the faith. Uh, he became an unbeliever, frankly. And, and he tells a story about the problem with Christians. That the problem with so many Christians is that they idolize the Bible. They're guilty of what's called bibliolatry, right? And he tells a story about this pastor one year preaching to his congregation and wanting to loosen the grip of the Bible on his congregation so that they could think freely and, and be more enlightened. He tells, announces a text from the Bible. He picks up the Bible off the pulpit. He leaves the pulpit in the chancel area, walks over to the stained glass window, raises one of the windows, and tosses the Bible out the window. And that was his approving example of good Christian leadership. And those people love their Bible too much. I think that writer is foolish. And he doesn't understand what people love about the Bible. We're not guilty of bibliolatry because we love the Bible. We love the Bible because it's in the Bible that we hear Jesus' voice. It's where he speaks. It's his word is living and active, and, and, and we bring ourselves to this Bible in faith. We, we hear our shepherd's voice, and we're enabled to, to keep step with him. God speaks in many ways, yes, sometimes in, in subjective impressions. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare his glory. All of creation is speaking day after night, day and night after night about the glory of God. But where God speaks most clearly to us is in his written word. So we prize this book because this book brings us to the chief shepherd. And we listen for his voice. And the more we listen to this book, the more we're able to hear his voice in the noise of the world and the confusions of life. The first thing Jesus says about his flock is that they, they hear his voice. How are you at hearing his voice? How are you at drinking from his word? Listening to the Savior. But there's a second thing now he says here. He says, I know them. I notice that the sheep are defined not so much by whether they know Jesus, but why, whether Jesus knows them. We're so accustomed to talking about our knowledge of God and whether we know God personally, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we also fail in that sometimes to, to realize how often the Bible talks about God knowing us. You might write these verses down and look at them later. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul says there, Formerly, when you did not know God, when you were not Christians, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You were an idolater then. Then he says in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, and then he corrects himself, or rather to be known by God. That's the sweeter thing. That's the deeper thing. Our knowledge of God in this life is always going to be imperfect and sometimes unstable, but he knows us. He knows us, and he loves us. And so Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Then he says in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
God knows us. And this knowing is not merely intellectual. It's just not sort of God is omniscient and he's got a head full of knowledge and facts about our lives. No, this, this knowing is also the knowing that, that, that comes along with love. He, he knows us in such a way as to love us. So 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Notice, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. To be a sheep in the flock of Christ is to be loved by Christ. He knows you, beloved. If you're not a Christian, that's terrifying. Because the one thing we want to do if we're not Christians is hide our sin. We want to hide knowledge of us. We want to shield away the world and, the, and, the, and the, 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 the outsiders and to keep them from any knowledge of that thing that we, we know is wrong but that we love and that we don't want to give up and, and that we want to serve and we want to keep. We, 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 we want to keep our sins over here where we coddle them and out of the sight of others. It's our precious. And the thought of a God who sees all and knows all we're not his, that feels invasive, intrusive. It ought to feel frightening. But if we're Christians, we have by God's grace taken that precious and seen it as disgusting. And, and we have dropped it before God. And being repulsed by it, we have looked up into the face of Christ who knows us and has shed his love upon us. And we have in return loved him. And he now is our delight. And we say things like the things David says in the psalm. If there's any unclean thing in us, we lay bare before God our hearts. And we say, know us well, search us and, and cleanse us and, and renew in us a, a right spirit. We no longer fear to lay open before God in our sins because we know he knows us. He loves us. And that's not fearful. That's comforting for the child of God. So we run to this flock, hearing his voice, telling us of his love. Notice the third thing about people in this flock. They follow him. They follow him. In the ancient Near East, shepherds did not drive their sheep from behind, whipping the sheep and making them go in a certain direction. They, they led their sheep from the front. And as they led, they sang or they whistled or did something. And the sheep, knowing their shepherd's voice, followed them. It's a remarkable way to lead in love. The shepherds traced out the path and set the course and set the example. And the sheep followed. So it is with Christ. We follow him. All true believing is also following. True sheep follow the voice of the shepherd. And they, in other words, they obey him. The path the shepherd takes the sheep take. His way becomes their way. A Christian word for this is discipleship, of course. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, a student follower of the way of Christ. There's no such thing as a person who is truly a Christian who is not also a disciple, who does not follow Jesus in that obedience that comes from faith. 
well-known Christian music artist recently did a ratchet-inspired track called I Love God. Some of y'all know that one, right? I love God. You love God? What's wrong with you? <laughs> I love God. It's kind of catchy. I don't know what it's about, but it's kind of catchy, you know. But the real question isn't, as that song asks, do you love God? The real question is, do you follow Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? For that's where the vague idea of loving God takes on very specific expression. Many people claim to love God vaguely. Oh, what the Bible keeps asking is, do you follow Jesus? Oh, that's how love for God is expressed. Even Jesus says so. Later in John's gospel, in John chapter 14, verse 21, he says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And just a little bit later in verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then he gives the opposite. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Our following Christ in obedience is how we express love to him as our Lord. Do you love God? Do you follow Jesus? There are three questions for us to hold on to here when we're thinking about these things. One question has to do with faith. Do I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Do I believe in this Jesus and this good news? Second question has to do with fellowship. Do I know the fellowship of his love? Do I know him? Does his knowing me bring me into his love? And thirdly, do I obey his word and follow his way? Perhaps think of those questions this evening. Reflect on your own life. Ask the Spirit of God to give you help to discern where you stand in relation to those things and to find great hope if you are in his flaw. If you have difficulty with any of those questions, please stick around for potluck. Talk with us about that. We love to talk more and to pray more about any of those questions you might have. It's why we exist. We really want you to know Jesus and to be known by him. For us, there is no greater thing in all existence. Which brings us to our final question. How do I know I'm going to finish? And more specifically, who am I trusting to get me to the end? And the wonderful thing about verses 28 and 30 is that to be a sheep in Christ's flock comes with certain guarantees. These, these are sweet and precious promises that, that teach us why we can be confident that if we have come to Christ in faith, we will persevere until the end. The main thing we're told is that our perseverance is also a kind of preservation. That while we continue in faith, it is God who is keeping us in the faith until we receive the goal of our faith, which is our salvation. Look with me at verses 28 to 30. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here are three reasons for our perseverance until the end. Number one, the life Jesus gives us never ends, and so we never perish. That's how I summarize the first part of verse 28. I give them, Jesus speaking, eternal life, and they will never perish. The life that Jesus gives is full and abundant and never-ending. That's what eternal means. It never ends. And that's why Jesus says, they who believe in him will never perish meaning we will never die. We will never stop existing. There is a life in the Christian life, Jesus' own life, that cannot be put out, that cannot be snuffed out. If we trust in Christ, even though we die, Jesus says, yet we shall live. Death becomes a doorway to an even greater life. So our persevering until the end is a result of being given a life that never ends. It will be God who keeps us by giving us this indestructible life. Notice the second thing. The hands that hold us are too strong for anything to threaten us. Verses 28 and 29. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There's a, there's a game people sometimes play with children. Maybe you've played this game. You've got something, a little kid, it catches their eye and they would like it. Maybe it's a marble or, you know, maybe it's a little coin and something shining and, and, and you hold it out to the little kid and, and you tell, challenge them to snatch it out of your hand. And every time they try to get it, you close your hand, right? You close your hand. And it, it's a fun way to torture kids, you know. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, you're there torturing the kid, having a great time and, and playing this game with it. And they can't, they can't get it out your hand, Right? And when they get old enough and quick enough to get out your hand, you stop playing the game, right? At least with money, you know. Uh, when God saved us, he took us into his hands. He never took his hands off of us. And there is no one quick enough or powerful enough to snatch us out. He can hold you in his hand as he does with Job and to say to the devil, have you considered my servant Job? He can hold you in his hand and say, do what you want. You're not going to get him. I got him. He can hold you in his hands and, and, and like his servant Paul. And, and, and Paul could suffer so many things, shipwrecks and, and beatings and being left for dead and, and bitten by vipers and, and whipped. And he said, do what you want. I got Paul. Paul is not going to deny me and I'm not going to deny Paul. You can't get him. He, he has you, Christian, in his hand. And he holds you before the world and he says, take a job blaspheme their name, persecute them, send them to a, a place in the world where Christians are being killed, and with every threat and every attack and everything that goes on, God chuckles because no one can take them out of his hands. And so we persevere because of God's power, because of his omnipotent hand. Take your seat right there in the palm of his hand. And rest, trust, no one can take you out. And did you notice something between verse 28 and 29? At the end of verse 28, Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then in verse 29, he says, no one can snatch them out of whose hand? The Father's hand. 
Man, you rest in Christ and the Father's hands. Nobody taking you from there. No threat, no weapon, no power can come against you in God's hands. You want to be sure that you will persevere to the end? Remind yourself that you rest in God's hands. Not your own, but the omnipotent God who keeps you. Look at a third thing. We, we are confident of our perseverance, number one, because Jesus gives us a never-ending life, and so we will not perish. And number two, because the hands that hold us are too strong for anything to threaten us. And number three, we're confident that we will persevere because the Father and the Son work together for our perseverance. We saw that there in verses 28 and 29, and Jesus makes it explicit in verse 30. I and the Father are one. There's not a hint of disagreement between the Father and Son when it comes to the perseverance of the saints. What the Son wants, the Father wants. What the Father wants, the Son wants. There is no sense whatsoever that the Father is still angry with us and just looking for an opportunity to smite us. And, and Christ keeps jumping in the way and defending us and said, Dad, cool down. You know, they'll be okay. That's not what's happening. And there's no sense in the world that, that the Father wants to save us and, and wants us to make it to the end, but Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf is somehow insufficient. No, not at all. What the Father wants is a people for himself. And what the Son has purchased is a people for himself. And they are completely agreed that all that are theirs will not be lost, but kept for their enjoyment. The Father and the Son of one, one in essence and one in purpose. And their purpose is that no one should ever be snatched from their hands ever, and they are not worried about it because no one's able to do it. This means we don't have to worry about it. If God is confident of keeping us, and God can do anything but fail, why would we ever be unconfident of being kept? If he says, I got you, and he relaxes, well, we should relax. We should go to sleep at night knowing he's got me. And we should wake up tomorrow knowing that whatever the day holds, he's, he's got me. And we should face our sins, which, which lure us and whisper and call to us with, you know, you know what, that's okay. God's got me. I don't have to go that way. And, and, and when our plans don't come together and we're tempted to think that, that we have to sort of make something happen. No, God's got us. We lean back. We rest in his hands. We trust him. Even with our very souls. Especially with our souls. And this is why perseverance, the Bible's teaching of perseverance, is for our joy. It's for our delight. It's for our comfort. And this is why I love the way our statement of faith works its way through this. So to conclude, what I want us to do is to read those three paragraphs. They're printed in your bulletin on a certain page. Page eight. On page eight of your bulletin, Chapter 17 of the London Baptist Confession, we have been attempting to illustrate from the Gospel of John, has three paragraphs here that are really a celebration, not of us keeping ourselves, 
but God keeping us. God keeping us. And so let's read together, beginning in the first paragraph. The saints are those whom God has accepted in Christ the Beloved and effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit. To them he has given the precious faith that pertains to all his elect. The persons to whom such blessings have been imparted can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but they shall certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved. For God will never repent of having called them and made gifts to them. Consequently, he continues to beget and to nourish in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that issue in immortality. Many storms and floods may rise and beat upon them, yet they can never be moved from the foundation and rock on which by faith they are firmly established. Even if unbelief and Satan's temptations cause them for a time to lose the sight and comfort of the light and love of God, yet the unchanging God remains their God. And he will certainly keep and save them by his power until they come to the enjoyment of their purchased possession. For they are engraven on the palms of his hands, and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. Well, that's good. Look at the second paragraph. It is on no free will of their own that the saints' perseverance depends, but on the immutability of the decree of election which in its turn depends upon the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, the efficacious merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, and the saints' union with him, the oath of God, the abiding character of the Spirit's indwelling of the saints, the divine nature of which we are partakers, and lastly, the terms of the covenant of grace. All these factors guarantee the certainty and infallibility of the saints' perseverance. Amen. And paragraph three. In various ways, the temptations of Satan and of the world, the striving of indwelling sin to get the upper hand, the neglect of the means appointed for their preservation, saints may fall into fearful sins and may even continue in them for a time. In this way, they incur God's displeasure, grieve his Holy Spirit, do injury to their graces, diminish their comforts, experience hardness of heart and accusations of conscience, hurt and scandalize others, and bring God's chastisement on themselves. Yet, being saints, their repentance will be renewed, and through their faith, they will be preserved in Christ Jesus to the end. Amen. This is, yes, amen. <laughs> amen. And a child shall lead them. <laughs> this is worth clapping for and rejoicing in. Consider these truths which we have skimmed today. And consider this God who keeps us in his hands. And go on believing because faith in Christ will never disappoint. Let's pray together. Father, we bless your holy and precious name. There is no other God but you. There is no other God like you. All the other gods are idols. 
They are deaf and dumb and blind, and those who follow them are just like them. But you are the true and living God who saves sinners. And those who trust in you will be like you, will be alive forever, will be with you forever, and will be filled with your joy and your love forever. We give you praise for we did not deserve any of your mercy, any of your grace, any of your love. In our sin, we had rebelled against you and caused your anger. But you sent Christ Jesus, your son, to do your work and your will. And he has become our righteousness by obeying you perfectly. And he has become the sacrifice that atones for our sin by dying on the cross. And he has become our life, being raised from the grave three days later. And it's him we trust and him we follow because he first loved us. Oh, Lord, we pray that even now you would bring someone into this faith, bring them into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and bring them, O oh Lord, into the way of Christ in Christian obedience. And even now we pray, O oh Lord, that you would be assuring and strengthening those who do believe, and by your grace keeping us all until the very end. Make us confident of our hope in you, that our hearts might rest in you. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.